This is Fresh Shed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Today, Michael Rumbelow joins me to talk about his Fresh Ed Flux episode. I recommend you go and listen to that episode before you continue with this one. In our conversation today, Michael and I talk about maths education and the power of block play. We even listened to a few clips of Michael's Flux episode to dissect the subtext and the sounds. Well, it's called number sense in early children and, and the idea that we, uh, before you can count, you can tell how many things there are up to three or four. And there's a good research that sort of you can see these graphs of how long it takes people to count things. And, but two, two, three, four things, you can, it's called supertizing. You can just tell how many there are at a glance. And um, that got me interested in the psychology of what was happening, uh, uh, not just cognitively, but psychologically with twos and threes. And uh, I read a bit of, um, I think it's man's, uh, Jung's Man and His Symbols. Uh, at the end, it sort of points to Jung being very interested in the basics of maths uh, from a psychological point of view. Michael Rumbler is a PhD student at the University of Bristol. Michael Rumbler, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thanks, Will. Congratulations on your Flux episode. It's like this sonic journey. You're just going all over the world and universe, listening to these sounds and your voice and these multiple stories. It was really quite the journey I felt as a listener. So congratulations on it. I guess I want to start by just asking, you know, what was this fellowship like for you? What was it like to put together this episode over the last year? It's been a wonderful um, experience, really. I didn't really know what to expect, but it's just turned out to be this sort of creative journey, really, and sort of another dimension to everyday research is just making these um, sonic representations of things. And just to have the support and the expertise that uh, you guys bring in, and especially the, the creative support, it's been fantastic. It really was quite a collaborative process, with you and Joe and Brett and myself. And it it was a journey. I sort of am surprised by the outcome in a way. You know, it is so incredibly beautifully put together sonically, but it's also quite deep. There's a lot of meaning behind what you created. Did you ever think that you would be able to produce something like this? I mean, it was quite incredible. Like, did you have experience with audio before coming to this fellowship? A little bit. I've always loved audio as a medium. I mean, I tend to listen to radio rather than, uh, you know, I don't have Netflix or anything like that and um, tend to listen to radio music. And I had as, even sort of doing my PGCE teacher training, I remember my project was to use audio to convey mathematical concepts. So I've sort of had this interest and it seemed just this opportunity to to explore that a bit really, the the audio side of things. And a couple of colleagues were looking at um, doing creative things research-wise, creative methodologies with poetry and um, multimedia so that sort of piqued my curiosity as well. And then when I saw the ad, it just seemed like, yeah, just a great opportunity to sort of have a go at that. Oh, I love it. It's so interesting to realize that there's so many people in the academic space looking for alternative outlets to express their ideas other than the written form. So thrilled that we were able to provide you some space to do that and sort of explore your ideas uh, sonically. What was most challenging for you? I think the the probably the most challenging was the finding a format, you know, never having really done it before and also 
just having this creative freedom really so it's, it ended up very different from what it started as you'll know but um it started really as very sort of abstract idea of blocks of sound without any real narrative and then over time it it, it kind of evolved into this physical location around the the Tavistock square and a sort of uh yeah like a journey around that square and I could never really have predicted that. It was just little things fell into place, like the uh, Virginia Woolf statue and the kindergarten and the various pe- characters in the, in the mentioned in the episode who happened to uh, have been uh, on that square at some point in history. But yeah, really, that was the challenging thing, I think, over time, iterating the, the format. And then the technical side was a learning curve, I would say. So I wasn't familiar with a lot of the software and uh, equipment so uh, I mean it was fun learning but it was uh, yeah quite a technical uh, steep learning curve I think yeah it's fair to say but worthwhile yeah I would imagine well excellent I'm really happy I mean so that that's quite interesting that the narrative sort of came second from a lot of the ideas of playing with sound and blocks and that you're saying that you with Tavistock Square you didn't some of the stories that you tell in the episode of the different characters on Tavistock Square you sort of learned of those stories in the process of researching this episode yeah very much so i mean i hadn't really known anything about tavistock square but then had vaguely read in researching the wrongers uh, first kindergarten that they were based they'd mentioned their address in one of the books from the time and I, i'd been curious where that was so one night it was during the lockdown i, I just dropped someone off at a, a hospital nearby and it was deserted so I just had some time to, to film. So I went to look for this first kindergarten and ended up sort of peering into this window of this, uh, looked like an empty at the time hotel, trying to look for this painting on the, so- of the solar system on the ceiling, which it mentioned in this, in this book, uh, from the kindergarten, just, you know, uh, uh, for something to do really, but, um, couldn't find it. No, no, it turned out I was in completely the wrong, uh, place. All the numberings changed over the years and things, but it did. And then I passed this pub called the Wolf and Whistle which was also closed at the time but just piqued my um interest in connection with Virginia Woolf and uh, yeah just one thing sort of led to another just sort of grew out of that really the connection with Tavistock Square and um yeah really uh, Virginia Woolf particularly sort of um seemed to be this thread that sort of uh led me down that that route really yeah you know historically it's just quite amazing all the people that lived on Tavistock Square and all the people that ended up having sort of international fame and you know, we're these huge individuals all living at different times and sometimes overlapping times in Tavistock Square. It's quite incredible. Yeah, I know. I mean, I, I, mean, I wonder how well, that may be true of other places, but this, um, if you do walk around Tavistock, there is a lot of kind of blue plaques and that area of, uh, of London, but it does seem like it's changed a lot over the years in, in the days when the wrongers were there. It was actually quite a, in Victorian times, I think at times it was quite a sort of more, you know, not such a, an affluent part of, um, of town really. So there were people coming from Germany and you know, refugees who, who, who were living there and, um, just interesting sort of, I found over the history of it, how it's, how it has changed. And yeah, there's like, I think Vladimir Lenin and Jerome K. Jerome, all these sort of, you know, next door on all these plaques of, to various people and, and lots who aren't, you know, celebrated with the plaques as well. So yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it's quite incredible, really. And how it, it maps on to your initial interest in ideas around blocks and blocks of sound. So, you know, Michael, blocks were so important. From, for this whole process, and of course in, in the final product that you created, you hear blocks everywhere. Did you 
play with blocks when you were a child? You know, I've always been fascinated to try and understand where your interest in blocks derived from. Yeah, I mean, I don't feel like I was much more than maybe other kids, but I did love Lego as a child. And yeah, so, and recently my sister found um, a box of Cuisinaire rods that we had as, as children, which was, she didn't know what they were actually, but of course, I mean, I recognized them and they're still sort of got a certain feel and texture and smell that I remember from those times. And then, yeah, there is one picture of me, I think, uh, as a child with this helicopter made of Lego that I'm very, very proud of. Uh, I was obviously very proud of at the time. So that was obviously an interest there. And then I think when I went to do my PGC and so to be a secondary maths teacher at the IOE, I mean, the IOE is where Gitenio really championed these Cuisinaire rods. But at the time, they'd I remember they'd kind of fallen out of fashion a bit, I think. You know, I remember someone saying, oh, you know, they're not used these days because people think that children associate the number four with the the color green or, and it was kind of like not seen as um, as so relevant in those days. But then there was a thing uh, in the England, there was a national numeracy strategy in the early 2000s, which uh, had pros and cons, but there was some materials that came out with that that were nice in that they had all these visual images of these manipulatives they call them like blocks and things like that which are used and then i was working on a online games to support this um uh in in my job and uh we basically based the games on these manipulatives which were number line there's counters and there were these blocks so we had these blocks a big tub of these blocks in the office and i remember just sometimes coming back to the desk and I'd discover these little sort of little mini structures that people had just made on the desk. And sometimes when I was sitting with people, they'd just start playing with these blocks and leave these little sort of sculptures on the desk. And and then after a while, I noticed people were putting their names, making their names out of these blocks and putting them on the top of their desks so that after a while, the office had all the, the you know people's names. And this was all sort of spontaneous. It wasn't kind of encouraged by me at all, but it did make me think that there's something in blocks that in block play that just sort of for all ages really you know just people sort of naturally kind of tend to build things so that was what what really got me interested i think and are you studying something related to this in your phd uh yes i'm actually i'm studying block play i'm looking to study what happens when children play with blocks in preschool or what's called in here it's called early years and foundation stage and then that seems to change as they go into primary school where there's a lot of focus nowadays on using blocks for maths modeling of mathematical arithmetic and in the government approved textbooks it's they're very very common now these blocks so i'm looking at that what is happening with the block play across that transition and in particular the relationship with attachment theory and potential sort of projection of uh, triadic and dyadic relationships onto blocks in play. What's amazing is that what you're exploring in your PhD, in many ways, there's elements of it in the episode that you have created because you can sort of hear the children playing with blocks. We hear Melanie Klein talk about projection. We hear issues around the triadic and dyadic relationships. You know, I mean, in that latter one, what is so significant when it comes to blocks and children playing when it comes to sort of twos and threes? Yeah, I mean, I think with the twos and threes, I think my first counter was a sort of focus on twos and threes was really from coming uh, somewhere by Brian Butterworth has studied something uh, called, that's called number sense in early children and, and the idea that we, uh, before you can count you can tell how many things there are up to three or four and there's a and there's some good research that sort of you can see these graphs of how long it takes people to count things and but two two three four things you can it's called subitizing you can just tell how many there are at a glance 
And um, that got me interested in the psychology of what was happening, uh, uh, not just cognitively, but psychologically with twos and threes. And uh, I read a bit of, um, I think it's man's, uh, Jung's Man and His Symbols. Uh, at the end, it sort of points to Jung being very interested in the basics of maths uh, from a psychological point of view, which got me interested in um, the psychological side. And then my supervisor put me on to Abraham Seidenberg has done some work on odd and even numbers and the, the ritual roots of those. And and then looking at even at the sort of ancient Greek mathematics, there's a big Plato seems to have been very influenced by Pythagorean thought, which is really all about twos and threes, a lot of it. And um, so, yeah, that was where a lot of that interest came from. And then looking at Klein and coming across some of her thought and Beyond as well. And they attach this psychological significance to splitting and then to the third other uh, in, in psychological early formative sort of relationships. So yeah, that was really the sort of rather convoluted kind of uh, journey. But it, but it, but once you start focusing on two and three, I think it, it has all these connections to lots of different different fields. I think. Yeah, it's quite amazing to hear you sort of make all these different connections just by sort of starting with how children play with blocks and then how it sort of informed so many big sort of theorists and academics that many different fields use even to this day. And, and what I what was so interesting about your episode is that you then were able to sort of tell this story through sounds in many ways, or the sounds sort of gave us insights into some of these ideas. What I'd like to do is actually play a few clips of your episode and then just have you talk through some of the subtext of these sounds that you were working with. The first one, you used or you made or you had this sound that was, I think, created by something called a whirly tube. So I'm going to play it for us. And then if you could just tell us what that sound means to you, what's the subtext behind this sound? A lot of the roots of mathematics are in nature. Geometry, literally earth measuring. Geo, earth, and metri meter, measure, from the same root word as ments, month, moon, as in commensurate, the full moon, quarter moon, new moon, earth, moon and sun, two bodies orbiting in space and the pull of the third, the three body problem, or is it a problem? Okay, Michael, so take us through that. Yeah, the sound is of, I mean, I call it a whirly tube. It seems to have these, these different names. You see them sometimes sold on uh, the beach in, uh, in England. And they're basically a sort of plastic tube that you, you whirl around and it makes that sound. And, um, I think from a mathematical point of view, it's, um, playing very simple harmonics. And as I understand it, it's sort of vibrating at, uh, half the length of, um, the tube and then a third of the length as you, as you speed up the spinning. So it was interesting from that point of view of it's sort of counting up in these uh, vibrations, you know, uh, double the vibration, triple the vibration as you spin it. And it's got this kind of quite haunting quality, I think, of this uh, this whistling uh, wind as well. So that was a real appeal. And it's kind of got this, for me anyway, this association with the beach and the waves, which, which seem to fit with several things, including Virginia Woolf. Um, and uh, sort of laid it over the three-body problem just because of the, the switching up, I think, from two to three and... The three-body problem being in mathematics that basically Newtonian mathematics has 
more or less solved this mathematical problem of how two bodies orbit each other like the earth and the sun but when you add a third body this is still unsolved in um in mathematics i mean there's lots of good approximations but but it's actually not been completely solved as to where these bodies are and how they how they spin around each other so yeah so that was the the real the reasoning between uh, the reasoning for layering those sounds oh i loved it you know there's actually a video of you spinning that whirly tube in the ioe and I think we've posted it on Twitter. And so I would encourage listeners to go and look at it. But I remember you coming to the IOE when we met in person to do some recording. And we and you had this little whirly tube in your bag of tricks, as I started calling it. Because you always had these like different toys and, you know, things to, to experiment with and, and more or less to play with. And that's one of the things I realized is that making this episode with you was one big process of play. Like we, we just played with sound, you played with ideas, you played with editing, and you sort of pulled it together in these really sort of complex ways, but also, you know, really enjoyable ways. So it was just so amazing in a way. Yeah, it was. I must say, I did enjoy it. And uh, yeah, wandering around with you guys as well. I mean, you really sort of opened my eyes to a lot of the sounds that, uh, you know, can be recorded and and then played within the edit as well. Um, Like the sort of munching uh, and crunching of the feet on gravel and um, bird noises and just yeah lots of things railings you know tapping them as we went around and uh yeah it was a lot of fun i mean that was part of the idea really to sort of explore this kind of kindergarten experience of in the recording as well as in the in the content so a lot of the sounds you ended up recording yourself versus sounds that you just found online and and used or a little bit of both uh yeah i mean i think the first one was just uh, literally just sort of got the fellowship and hadn't really done any recording and then having this recorder and realizing that the winter solstice was just coming up in um uh, well 21st of december uh, and there was a celebration in stanton drew which is just outside bristol at the stone circle there and, and going down there at dawn with this recorder and sort of uh standing outside the circle and just uh, capturing some of the the sounds and and then just hearing all these dawn chorus of the birds and uh, yeah i remember going to the there's a churchyard there and just the clang of the of the gate of the churchyard just sort of standing there we keep clanging this this gate to get this great sort of clanging noise yeah so apologies to the, the neighbors if they were there at the time me clanging the gate at, at dawn but it was it's just the sound qualities were just lovely at that time of day out in the countryside and that really opened my eyes to it and then and then yes playing with all the online sounds it's just i mean i just found it a lot of fun just playing with the different layering of lots of all you can get a lot of uh, great free sound effects now online so yeah that was quite fun uh, quite amazing to think about all the different layers that you've put together some that you recorded some that you found online some that you know the narration that you created but you did create these sort of world and feelings and emotions while you know all through sound I want to play another clip and have you sort of talk through it because this one uses sort of sound in such a beautiful way and and, and I think has a, a deeper subtext as well. So let's listen to this one. Here there are still the original townhouses with their classical Georgian architecture based on musical harmonies. Goethe called architecture frozen music, a music liquid architecture. So for instance, if you look at the windows, they're all the same width. On the top floor, they're square. Lower down, they're double heights. The music double the pitch is the same note an octave higher. And below that, they're triple height. This ratio of two to three is one of the most common harmonies in music. The ancient Greeks believed that two was the female principle and three the male. 
and that the harmonies of these vibrations resonated with their gods, the planets in the heavens. And if you run a stick around the double-length window, tapping each corner, you would get a double-length beat followed by a single beat along the short side, a threeness in the two-ness, like the rhythm of a waltz or a heartbeat, like the rhythm of the corners walking around Tavistock Square or dancing around it. so-called irrational harmonies that didn't fit these female-male 2-3 ratios, like the side of the square with its diagonal, caused the ancient Greek philosophers problems. Okay, Michael, walk us through that. I mean, there's so much there. Yeah, I think the uh, sort of original sort of uh, thought behind that was that um, if you look at the maths curriculum, sort of for th- over a thousand years probably from in in europe western europe at least from the ancient greek traditions right up to sort of medieval times uh, music was definitely part of the maths curriculum and it was it was all i mean the four strands of the maths curriculum were uh number geometry which was number in space music which was number in time and astrology which was um music number in time and space uh which was um related to the music of the spheres and finding these harmonies that um resonated with uh yeah with the co- with the cosmos really right back from from sort of platonic uh, philosophy um and so the instrument in those days i think for learning maths was one of the main instruments was a, a musical string just a, mo- a monochord which you could divide into these ratios and they really attached a lot of them importance to this philosophically and uh, seem to influence a lot of the um, architecture and the, the principles of the architecture as well so that when when the classical architecture was revived in in Europe and uh, 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 in the in the 17th and 18th centuries uh, seemed to translate into all this architecture in London um, and so it's still there really this connection with the the musical harmonies uh, which I was trying to bring out and the waltz itself the blue Danube it- I mean, when I hear it, I think of 2001 The Space Odyssey, Stanley Kubrick's movie. I mean, was that intentional? Uh, yes. I mean, that was originally was trying to find ways of, of referencing that a little bit in the episodes, really because of the, the monolith and the, the idea of this block that is sort of mysterious and also has all these sort of deeper meanings uh, projected onto it. So, yeah, that was just a sort of nod, nod towards that, really, yeah. And, you know, when you talk all about the different windows of the architecture in Tavistock Square, the Georgian architecture, I, you know, personally now, ever since I've listened to your episode, I can't walk around London and not look at Georgian architecture and think about all the ratios as you've described them in your episode. Like, that's now how I see the world. Oh, that's great. Well, yeah, a sort of a similar thing happened to me, really. I think I saw, an, I went to an exhibition about Palladian, Palladio, and then after that, yeah, everything seemed to be, uh, yeah, twos and threes. I think you have a, a line in the episode like, 
you know, you see blocks everywhere. And it's sort of, that's now, listening to your episode, I sort of am seeing blocks everywhere I go in the world. Yeah, I, 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 you know, sympathize. And yeah, and then also it sort of highlights where the ratios don't work. So the, yeah, and more, especially more recently, you know, all the postmodern, it sort of has broken up those those harmonies a little bit and alongside all the the sort of directions in in western music as well i think uh western classical music anyway and lots of other traditions are sort of um disrupting that uh those sort of neat ratios i think so yeah so at the end that dissonant harmony was uh just a, a sort of allusion to that really but and it also connected to even the design of tavistock square as you clearly say is not actually a square but sort of a you know has this diagonal side to it as well so yes the, the diagonal of a square is um what they call in maths an irrational number so you can't express it as a ratio of of two whole numbers and the diagonal of a cube so from one corner of a cube to its opposite corner is um again the square root of three which is uh another irrational number you know i really love what you've done in this episode where you you take some of these mathematical ideas and you show how they exist in space in reality so such as tavistock square but you also make these connections to music to Greek philosophy, to children playing with blocks. And so it's just this, you know, unbelievably deep engagement with sound and the layers of sound that you've that you've created that I think need a lot of unpacking in a way. And it's why in your episode, you've actually added all these footnotes to your episode. So if you go online and look at your episode, you'll find all these footnotes that, that you've created. You know, can you talk a little bit maybe just about some of these footnotes and, you know, what your, the purpose behind them was? Both just to capture some of the uh, stories behind the little uh, references that may not be obvious uh, listening to the episode straight away or for people that might be interested. And there was lots of sort of detours, you know, it's, it, it, so lots of things that didn't make it into the episode. So it was a way really of uh, capturing some of those yeah, I think it was um, a way really of uh, some of these elements may seem a little bit disparate. I mean, there's a there's a, a, a vague thread of them being linked to the walking around the square. Um, and I think the the footnotes was a, a way of sort of adding other threads that uh, that can tie these uh, these various elements together a little bit. Okay, I have one final clip from your episode to play that I'd love to hear sort of some of that subtext and how you sort of threaded this all together and connected it to this idea of mathematics and blocks. So here we go. Well, they opened the first kindergartens there and the movement spread around the world. Okay, can you explain what was going on in that clip? Yeah, I think I was uh, just came across on uh, on YouTube this uh, Viennese boys choir recording of that uh, sea shanty, which was had gone uh, viral, I think, a bit in over over lockdown, and yeah, just seemed to have something of the well, children singing, which is a big part of, of kindergarten, uh, had the harmonies and also had this uh, sort of viral quality, uh, the way it uh, had spread around the world, and the way that seemed to reflect a bit the way kindergarten is quite. 
remarkably, I think, you know, spread all around the world and, and, and following these a lot of the time, these sort of colonial sort of routes via the, the ships and the, and the sugar and the tea and the rum that they mentioned. And also bringing together this, uh, it's about whaling. If you listen to the whole shanty and it seems to have been written by a, a whale or, or comes traditionally from whaling uh, crews in uh, around New Zealand, which seem to resonate with the, the move of Cuisinaire rods and the silent way uh, around the world to New Zealand as well. Um, and also just, I've been became sort of during the episode more interested in uh, uh, Deleuze and Guattari um, two um, French philosophers um, and their idea of the refrain and they talk a lot if you ever read the book Thousand Plateaus about uh, I think on the first page is this picture of Messiaen's um, a, a score by Messiaen and they talk about his interest in uh, birdsong and how that was where the, the seagulls were sort of coming in there a little bit anyway but this uh, this idea of a refrain that is can start in uh, one place and then become something else uh, somewhere else you know it's so deep right there's so many layers here and so much meaning behind this sound and yet it sounds so beautiful the Viennese boy choir I guess also connects to Melanie Klein in a way who also lived in Vienna so many interconnections yeah it's really it's just it's quite incredible to see this final product or to hear this final product and you know realize all of these interconnections but I guess going back to you know some of the main points about sort of children's block play and the the, the sort of pedagogy of learning through block play having put together this episode and all the different sounds that are used in it. What does it say about learning, I guess, to you? What does it say about how, you know, through this process of creative creation, what does it say about learning and pedagogy to you? Yeah, I think uh, I've become more into sort of reading Froebel, particularly, I think, about uh, his pedagogy. And, and, and one of the things I find, if you go back to Froebel, is you read his book say um the education of man is is sort of a seminal book about education and it's and it's really quite a challenging read i mean it's quite mystical a lot of it and he talks a lot about uh crystals and these natural world elements and he seems to relate nature and crystals and trees and things like that um with these relationships within families like uh sort of like the idea of connecting with mother nature as almost like a familial r- relationship and in particular for pedagogy i find that really interesting especially in the age group i'm looking at like the younger age group how we how we bring our these anxieties and hopes and desires from from birth really and how they translate into pedagogy i think it's uh often the pressure seems to be sort of to push curricula earlier and earlier whereas i think there is a lot to be said for push expanding kindergarten sort of philosophies up into the uh into the primary and secondary um age groups so i think i think that's been the thing i've really taken away sort of more confidence in in kindergarten uh pedagogy and philosophy yeah now that you've sort of finished this flux fellowship and you've created this really beautiful episode do you think you're going to approach your phd research differently in any way uh yes i think so i mean uh, um i think it's given me a lot more it sort of encouraged me to look more at uh creative methodology certainly so um yeah i've been exploring ways i could possibly use block structures in 
authoring the PhD, you know, somehow, I'm not sure yet how, whether it's through a sort of uh, block constructed sort of element of the, the PhD or, or through the structure of the actual sort of text somehow in, in, in blocks. Um, but yes, it's definitely sort of opened my uh, ears and eyes to sort of lots of new possibilities in, uh, in research and, and again, and studying on the PhD definitely and playing with blocks with the, with the kids. I'm hoping to, I'm looking forward to that sort of in observing that and seeing what they, they come up with as well yeah well michael rumbler thank you so much for joining i really look forward to actually reading your dissertation when it's done i feel like you're gonna put together something quite different and unique from say the normal dissertation that a phd student might might produce so congratulations on your episode thank you so much for sort of playing over the last year it's really been a pleasure on my end and best of luck on your phd journey oh thanks so much will yeah it's been an absolute pleasure yeah Michael Rumbelow is a PhD student at the University of Bristol. A transcript of today's interview with a selection of resources for further exploration can be found at freshheadpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on FreshEd are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not FreshEd, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. FreshEd's team includes Sherry Yang, Fatih Oktas, Oba Femi Ungunle, Dion Jiang, Annabella Afroboteng, Anya Lin, Phyllis Che Mensa, and Jose Neto. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Fresh Ed is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, the UCL Institute of Education, NORAG, the Shakhtar Family Fund, and listeners like you. Please consider donating to Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com slash donate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem. And I'll be back next week.